This is The Blueprint, brought to you by Executive Platforms. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for another episode of Executive Platforms Blueprint podcast series. My name is Jeff Mix. I'm head of content and research, and uh, I'm joined here today with uh, Jack Garvey. He's a co-founder and CEO of Compliance Architects, and he's an expert on oh, just about everything to do with uh, risk, regulatory compliance, um, uh, quite a few things, and we're going to talk about them today at uh, our biopharmaceutical event. Jack, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You've been having a lot of conversations uh, today with uh, senior biopharmaceutical executives. What are some of the common themes or talking points that you're, you're having in your conversations? I think a lot of the challenges that biopharmaceutical manufacturers are facing today is that the science is outpacing concepts of, or perceived concepts of acceptance by regulatory bodies regarding control and uh, quality systems and quality expectations. And so the science is really driving um, vastly new and, and um, uh, great potential therapeutic outcomes for biologic products. And the challenge is that companies are not sure how the agency, how the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and other uh, international regulatory bodies are going to be looking at what is necessary to control the manufacture and build of those products. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, concern about that and a lot of, I guess, hesitance based on traditional principles that people believe are um, established by the Food and Drug Administration. I also think that that is really kind of a, a not valid uh, assumption that, that there isn't an allowance to uh, adapt current approaches to quality management and quality control to these new therapeutic entities. In fact, I think there is plenty of opportunity to do that with the right level of definition of what are you trying to functionally develop, what's your therapeutic outcomes, and then what is critical about that whole therapeutic outcome and functional performance to the build activity of the product. And by telling that story and by essentially doing a good job with helping the FDA understand that, you can actually um, uh, do a great job with respect to putting in place good, flexible, robust control programs that are appropriate for these current and innovative therapeutic entities. So what are some of the key stumbling blocks that people are having? That, that seems pretty straightforward to me, but obviously it's not so simple. Where, where are they getting stuck? I think some of where they're getting stuck is traditional thinking. And it flows from a, a lot of the original um, ideas about regulation and control, what are classically called good manufacturing processes, flow from small molecule manufacturing. Biologics is a different entity. Um, there's, there's high levels of variability. The process tends to be the product, or at least that's how it was traditionally thought about. So there are some pre-existing assumptions that you can do this, or you can't do this, or you have to do this, which I don't necessarily know are valid, and I actually don't think are valid. The FDA is seeking companies to lead in the area of development of appropriate control to get these new therapeutic entities not only to market, but out to the patient and the consumer in a reliable, consistent manner. So I think probably the, one of the biggest failings is that companies are hesitant and don't really understand that there's quite a bit of allowance to do that. Um, certainly there are existing regulatory frameworks that have to be, um, I'll say navigated, but really provided as an input to the control frameworks that, that need to be put in place. So I would say one of the big issues is a misperception of what you can and can't do. 
Um, and secondly is really the creative thinking to design um, and really tell the story about how we are controlling the build activities such that we're achieving the therapeutic, functional, and safety outcomes that are necessary for these innovative products. And the final thing I would say here is that um, going along with that, that story of control is really a risk management or risk balance, um, I guess, uh, uh, kind of model that needs to be developed that says even where we don't have full characterization, where we have variability, that based on the biological science and the underlying medical science um, and all other things being considered, level, you know, what is our current level of ability to control? What is the, what is the current state of the art? That net-net in the populations that we're dealing with, there is still a benefit to the patient by, by going through with our current state of the art with these products. And that's something that I think those models are, are relatively immature at this point and need to be improved such that the companies can tell that story combined with that whole control framework and that control plan. I do want to circle back to risk in a moment, but in yeah. the meantime, can you expand a little bit collaborating with the FDA, collaborating with regulators, they're seeking input. What does that actually look like if a company wants to engage with the regulators and say, this is how I think it should be done, how does that go? So I, I think um, th there, there's been a shift, and I don't think the information has percolated out to all manufacturers or even maybe many manufacturers. FDA has made uh, dramatic efforts over the last 10 or 15 years to understand the challenges of the industry in bringing innovative, um, life-saving, and um, health-advancing products to market, not only in the pharmaceutical space, in the biopharmaceutical space and in the medical device space. And as an example, FDA, um, they're trying to help pull industry forward to say, you guys can lead and you guys can embrace innovative concepts. And I'll give you two examples of that. One is in the uh, pharmaceutical space, in the biopharmaceutical space, is FDA's really driving the bus on continuous manufacturing. And FDA looks at this as a, uh, an approach that companies can improve their ability to create consistency with their drug product supply or biologic product supply, and also increase the levels of control. Now companies could have been embracing that on their own, but don't for you know, concerns of risk or that it's not appropriate. So FDA is really driving that. Second uh, example I'll use is on the medical device side. There's uh, an, uh, an organization and in, an activity, uh, industry FDA collaboration called the Medical Device Innovation Consortium that is really uh, a, a true joint collaboration between FDA and industry to try to improve quality concepts. What I take from this is that FDA is extraordinarily, and other regulars, by the way, are extraordinarily open to companies collaborating with them, telling them what they, what they are planning, what they're uh, hoping to accomplish with bringing new therapeutic entities to market, and how they see the science and the, and, and the, medical, uh, the medical science that is necessary to bring those product to market and control it and under, understanding that there is no perfect product, there never has been, there never will be, and how that fits in with the risk balance of, of achieving the patient outcomes. So FDA is extraordinarily open to the, that discussion and dialogue. Um, what I would recommend to companies is that you really just start those conversations. I would encourage you also, if you're not familiar with how to approach that, to get support. There are a lot of experts out there that can provide that guidance on how to deal with FDA, how to contact them, how to lay that groundwork and explain these technical principles, these scientific clinical principles, and what you're planning to accomplish. 
So hopefully that answered your question. Let's expand upon risk and, and how pharmaceutical companies, biopharmaceutical companies, should be looking at risk when they're engaging with the FDA, when they're uh, mapping out their, their route forward. There's a lot to talk about in this space. When you're having these conversations with the decision makers, what do you want to put in front of them? What do you want them thinking about? Ah, I love risk. And risk is something that I live in every single day. And I think it's really important to understand that when people talk about risk and risk management, it's not about the elimination of all risk. Um, it's almost impossible to eliminate all risk. Um, we get out of bed each day, and as soon as we hit the floor, we experience risk. What is critically important for companies to do is to understand the drivers of risk, understand where risk flows from, and to manage that risk and prioritize that risk such that some risk is really important to address and we have managed it, controlled it, mitigated it to the extent possible, and some risk is really you know, just all not all that important. And that's really important for a company to do because they no company has infinite resources. So regardless of whether you're talking about a regulatory submission or you're talking about uh, building controls or quality systems or a new product introduction, you know, it's all about risk and telling that story of how we, where the risk flows from, what are the risk characteristics, what's the likelihood, the probability, and using good risk models to quantify that risk and create relative risks is really important for companies to, um, to get a handle on. And if they're not good with risk management, again, they need help to build those risk models such that they can explain both internally to their own internal stakeholders and to the, to the external parties, in particular the regulators, what is the risk considerations they should be looking at. So let's talk about that. Uh, tools, assistance, some of the, the options out there when they're looking at their risk models and they're, they're trying to make something that's going to make sense to people, what should they be thinking about? So uh, one of the things that uh, I, I am a, someone who works a lot in enforcement risk and we help companies that are regulated by the Food and Drug Administration and other regulatory bodies. And one of the things that um, we try to help companies with is understanding, again, where risk flows from and how to mitigate that risk. So just as an example of, of a methodology and approach, we've developed a methodology that helps companies understand, I call it their basket of risks, uh, gaps and issues that exist around the organization. And we've developed a, 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 a algorithmic model to create risk scores from that and align that against complexity or remediation. We call it our CRPN quality roadmap. And the reason we developed it is because companies have all of this stuff problems that are out there that they're dealing with and they don't know how to they don't know how to uh, start on, on fixing it and I, I have often used the analogy of somebody's in a, in a lake um, treading water and they've got their head above water and they're doing all they can to just breathe and what they really need to do is to get to the other side of the lake so we come in and we help them with this uh, this risk model help them understand the risk prior, hard prioritize the risk in a relative sense so it gives them a roadmap forward so that they can make true change to the organization. And whether you're talking about enforcement risk or you're talking about um, risk of, uh, for a submission or design risk, you need to have good models in place uh, that will help you understand the relative risk and you need to focus on those top areas of risk and drive them and eliminate them out of the, out of the process. A partnership with uh, uh, an outside consulting group or, or bringing in a new tool to help it can seem a little intimidating to some executives. It's, it's new people, it's new ideas, it's new concepts. What does day one look like? Like, how do you get started on a thing like that? Well, the models of uh, consulting engagement support 
in when you're dealing with any of these sorts of topics, solving problems for a company. The, the approach to it is, is fairly standard. You first have to have an understanding of what is the current state of the organization. So you really need to give an assessment, a diagnosis of the company in the context of what they're looking to, um, to resolve and, imp and improve. So you've got to go in, you've got to essentially talk to the stakeholders, get an understanding of their considerations. We do a lot of interviews, um, cl uh, you know, classical interviews with uh, executive stakeholders and operational stakeholders as far as what are they seeing as the problems. We then combine that with um, operational data and information, the quality system performance data, and that gives us an idea of the, the overall health of an organization. That then can drive you into the creation of the, call it improvement plan, remediation plan, whatever term you use for that, which really drives you to an improved state. And I call it making a, a step change in the operation. What we need to be doing as uh, we exist as consultants, our job is to help companies cre create a step change in their operation, improve their operational capability from wherever they are at this point to a higher state of performance. And that includes not just compliance performance, it includes quality outcomes, it, it includes effectiveness, it, in it includes personnel understanding, and it includes financial measures. We have to help companies, we do help companies improve the reproducibility and consistency in their operations and in their outcomes for the business. When you talk about your role as a consultant is to help organizations reach that step change. I appreciate every organization is different and every situation is different. You did mention there's sort of a standard way of doing things. What does a typical timeline look like? What is a realistic estimate when someone says, I have this challenge, I think you can help me. What's realistic in terms of, is this going to be a year? Is this going to be six months? When can I expect progress? It's a great question to understand how long you should expect results. And I think that um, often with projects, and I've, I've learned this from my experience in big companies, uh, I tend to have a bias not to try to boil the ocean and not to create these big, massive projects. They tend to collapse. So how we approach it, whether it's small, medium, or large, we try to create um, bite-sized chunks of engagements that, um, that establish success and have each subsequent um, uh, level of the improvement activity build on the prior success. So if it's a small problem, we would still approach it with a, what is, where are you um, with the state of your health of your systems um, and establish that. Do the remediation and complete the outcomes and the deliverables. And even if that's a 30 day project, we're gonna, so following that same framework, um, there is still, um, uh, that isn't such a big project that we worry about it being chunked, but if we got into a situation where there is a large remediation, complete um, deficiencies in their quality systems, in their operational performance, and their product quality, so the process would look the same. You'd still want to do those assessments and, and the, the essential health of the organization, but you'd want to create chunks of projects because executives appropriately don't like to sign up for large spends right away. You also, as a consultant, need to establish trust. And the best way to establish that trust is through performance. And you want to provide good outcomes to the client at regular levels so they can say, we trust this, this firm and these individuals. We know they understand our business. We know they have our back. And they're moving us in a, into a step change in operations. So I think probably one of the best ways to approach it is by chunking it. And that could result in 
you could be doing projects for two years to an end objective, but you're still looking at it in little bites such that it is digestible for the organization, but at the end, and having that vision established for the end, you still achieve that step change in operation. Now, one of the pieces you mentioned when you were talking about different options within an organization was quality. And of course, with biopharmaceuticals, quality is king. Uh, they talk about their quality culture as the bedrock that it either works or it doesn't because we have the culture behind it. How does your organization and organizations like yours engage with quality culture when they're struggling? Quality culture has, has been a topic that I've, I've personally been interested in for about 15 years. And um, it, it, it started, it coalesced as a concept about that long ago, about 15 years ago. And, and really, I saw it as something that was, uh, the, it, cre it was the environment in which the structural systems exist that really kind of drove the behaviors in the background of the individuals. And so it has been something that has been really hard to um, uh, create tight and, and kind of geometric bounds around. But in fact, it's something that's critically important for industry to understand how to essentially establish a measure of culture because you really need to know where you are such that you can achieve where you want to be. And culture has been recognized by the Food and Drug Administration as being critically important, and both on the device and the pharmaceutical side has been something that the agency is looking at in their risk-based uh, inspection principles as making a cornerstone of how they want to determine what companies' cultures are so they can determine what is an appropriate risk-based inspection um, schedule because they know that companies with good cultures perform better. So one of the things we've been doing with culture is we've actually recently launched a quality culture diagnostic um, because there was nothing in the industry and we said we need to solve this problem for the industry. Um, and it's based on 15, 20, 30 years of culture science um, and also recent uh, discussions in the last 15 years or so about quality culture. And we've, we've taken a best of breed approach uh, to the, the culture science um, and the quality culture inputs We've wrapped around um, uh, strong uh, web-based assessment tools and data analytics, and we're really, really excited about um, bringing industry's first quality culture diagnostic, which we think is gonna have great effect in, help, in helping companies to understand, not in a precise measure, but in a directional level, where they are on the quality culture continuum. Are they at risk? Are they really in a, in a undesirable state? Or are they in a state where yes, we have work to do, but we're still more positive than negative. And that kind of objective assessment just doesn't exist. So uh, the, the importance of quality culture is only gonna continue to grow because it's recognized as one of the significant drivers of outcomes. And the role we're playing in that is to bring um, a new state-of-the-art research, scientifically-based tool to help companies understand where they are on that uh, culture kind of scale and help them start their culture transformation journey. Let's expand upon this tool, because when I think of quality culture, I think of a qualifiable rather than a quantifiable. How have you measured how well a organization functions when it looks at quality? A, a lot of the work we've done, and, and this is not the only area, but specific, specifically with regard to culture, is there are concepts that exist, such as risk, that is a qualitative concept at heart. We think of risk qualitatively. We get up in the morning, we think of, we, we may not even think of risk, but there's risk in front of us. We go out to the highway, risk is there. So risk is a qualitative concept, but you have to go through and develop models that give you some sort of quantitative measure. 
Culture is exactly the same way. People know kind of qualitatively what a company's culture is. But that's really not that, that kind of thumb in the air, yeah, I think they've got a bad culture, does not work for executive stakeholders that are looking to make investments to improve their culture or believe that there may be a problem where something doesn't exist. So uh, in, in the journey of developing our model, we've figured out um, and using a great deal of, of kind of um, science that has been established, how to essentially create um, semi-quantitative measures of a qualitative concept. And we do that through decomposition of the concept of culture in a qualitative sense into constituent elements and measuring at a lower level those constituent elements and then being able to roll that up into a higher level and really getting out to a single numerical score. So it's really a decomposition process of characteristics of something that's qualitative, um, getting down to the lower levels where you can actually assign quantitative measures and then rolling that back up again. And it's something that we apply, as I said, not only to culture, we've applied it to risk. And there are certainly other concepts that that sort of process is available and it's very valid and it may not be precise, but it is highly directional and very indicative of where we are in a spectrum with respect to risk, with respect to culture or other types of um, what I'll call uh, subjective um, qualitative uh, concepts. So we've covered a lot of ground and I think there are some people who have been listening to this who are going to think, okay, well, I know where we started and I know where we ended up. What are some of the key takeaways you want listeners to think about a little further after, after reviewing what we've been talking about? One of the things that I think is most important in this space is that uh, companies need to remember that the FDA in particular and other regulators will not tell you what you should do. It is your job to characterize your products, your processes, um, your therapies, what's critical about them, the critical quality attributes, the critical control points, um, and describe for the regulators the state of control of how you develop, build, manufacture these products. And if you do a good enough job with that and you link your control framework back to your um, therapeutic, functional, clinical desired outcomes, that they will be, uh, they will cooperate with you and they will work with you because that is essentially what they're trying to establish. So don't seek the FDA, don't seek from the regulators, the FDA, um, what you should be doing. It's your job to characterize and understand your science, your technology, your platform, the medical science, and tell that story such that they have confidence that you know what you're doing and you know how to bring that to market and you know how to manufacture that in a way that will achieve the outcomes for the patients. That I think is the number one thing I see with companies that they're waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. It is all available out there. If you have the good science, good engineering, good technology, you can do what you want given or assuming that you are have the same objectives which is to provide high quality products with great therapeutic out, outcomes that are safe and effective for patients. That's all the FDA wants, that's all other regulators want. And they will work collaboratively with you to get to that end product, sta that end state. If someone wanted to connect with you to learn more about this, whether it be risk models or, or collaborating with, uh, with regulators or, or maybe measuring their quality culture, what's the best way to get in touch? I would say as a starting point, um, like most companies, visit our website. 
Uh, it's compliancearchitects.com. That's architects with an S. Apologize for the long name. Um, email, uh, you can certainly reach me at john.garvey at compliancearchitects.com. Uh, our um, general office number is 888-734-9778. Uh, we also have a vice president of business development, Jeff Grizel. Uh, Jeff uh, can be reached at jeff.grizel, G-R-I-Z-Z-E-L, at compliancearchitects.com. But fallback is visit our website. As long as I got you uh, on record here, I want to know, I'm calling you Jack. Your email is John. What's the story there? Uh, I was born, uh, I'm an old guy. I was born in uh, 1962 when John Jack Kennedy was in office uh, and my mom liked John Kennedy. And uh, so, and J Jack is a common nickname for John. So uh, I'm a Jack. Uh, I've been dealing with it all my life. Well, thank you for answering that. I know the executive platforms team has been kicking that one around for a few years. Uh, he's actually, uh, it's worth saying he's chaired uh, what, three or four of these for us now over the years, and we always invite him back because he always gets rave reviews, and I, I can see from this podcast why. Jack, thanks so, uh, so much for your time today. Oh, Jeff, it was really my pleasure. I love working with the Executive Platforms team. You guys do such a fantastic job, so uh, I hope I'll get uh, the opportunity to chair again, and I really appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you on this. If I have anything to say about it, absolutely. You've been listening to the Blueprint Podcast Series. I've been Jeff Mix, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Yeah.